Our scripture passage for today is Mark 10, verses 17 to 31, which you can find on page 8 in your bulletin. Before I read the passage, Ron, who happens to have his birthday today, happy birthday, Ron, is going to lead us in a prayer for illumination. Dear Lord God, Jesus said that with you all things are possible. I pray that today you truth will get through to our minds and hearts. I ask you to help us apply Jesus' word to our lives. May we see, Lord, able to obey fully no matter what. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen. Amen. Mark 10, 17 to 31. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. He said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these since my youth. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, You lack one thing. Go, sell what you own and give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he was shocked and went away grieving, for he had many possessions. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were perplexed at these words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. They were greatly astounded and said to one another, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, For mortals it is impossible, but not for God. For God all things are possible. Peter began to say to him, Look, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly, I tell you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the good news who will not receive a hundredfold now in this age houses, brothers and sisters, mothers and children and fields with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. The word of the Lord. First off, I think it's uh, entirely appropriate that on a day when we're going to read a text about selling all you have and giving to the poor, that I forgot my wallet upstairs and shrugged the offering plate off when it was passed just now. (laughs) Not the first time. The second thing I realized just now as I was looking here is I think even though I was an elder for a few years that the only other time I've ever been up front here 
at Geneva was at the memorial service for our dear friend Alec Johnson that probably many of you were at four or five years ago. Um, and his parents were actually planning to drive down and come and join us for worship this morning, but apparently they just texted Jim and they, and they won't be able to make it. The weather was too strong up there. But I also thought it was appropriate that this is a text that Alec would love and also be troubled by, rightly so. So maybe it's fitting that uh, um, the second time that I got corralled into coming up, it also has something to do with another uh, brother who's no longer with us but continues to be uh, an example for us. I know maybe half or so of you. I was here uh, uh, at Geneva from 2006 to 2010. I would visit occasionally before then when I lived in Grand Rapids uh, when Marsha Bosher's brother, Mark, was my pastor for a while at Sherman Street, so I would come in. And, uh, but while I was here from 2006 to 2010, I was in a grad program and I was an elder for a few of those years. But uh, even though I lived right next door, I would always sit right in the back row in fact, right where Mike Winowski is sitting at this moment. <laughs> uh, and it, it, got to be <laughs> it got to be a little bit of a joke where you know, people would be like, shouldn't elders be in the front of the church, you know, leadership and modeling responsible spiritual maturity and so forth. But I always felt more at home in the back. And, and, and you kind of find out by accident when you're back that there's a little different clientele. It's people who come in late <laughs> and who leave early, maybe because they they're just don't have their act together quite like I did, but also for other reasons. Maybe, you know, maybe they've been wounded in church and they, they just don't feel like they can be in the middle of the spotlight. They, they're hoping to hear from God, but they're not sure they'll be able to hear it through his people. So they come a little late, leave a little early, and, and you get to know what's happening. And now when I'm in Juarez, I'll, I'll usually go to church in, at, at Monsieur Day's here, see Sunday mornings in El Paso, and I still sit in the back church, even though I live, again, right, literally right next door, and I again get grief from the elders for uh, being this missionary who always sits in the back row. But again, I really feel like that's, there's a parish back there in the back, uh, and I'll often find myself, you get to know people, you're sitting next to some vet with PTSD or a woman who's had an abortion or other people who just don't feel like their place is in the front, but they do hope they have a place in the back. And uh, so for those of you who also like the back, that's, it, it's a good parish back there. Um, <laughs> The other advantage that I found of sitting in the back uh, is that uh, I would often, you know, with Lisa Woodson or later Stephanie and Andrew White, we would just kind of keep a running uh, Mystery Science Theater 3000 commentary on the service as we went, because you can kind of whisper and get away with more in the back. Um, which, uh, ironically, you know, if you're going to try and mine sermons for comic material in real time, you actually really have to pay attention. Uh, so we learned, we learned uh, more from Mike than he probably guessed we were as we were snickering back there. So we, we were laughing with you, Mike, not at you. Um, this is much better that Mike is actually here. This is, by the way, my standard way of getting through sermons. You tell lame jokes for 10 minutes, and then you rush through the final 10 minutes because you've run out of time. Um, we are now moving on, on to the text. These... <laughs> The, the texts that we, we've chosen uh, are from the lectionary. For the last uh, four years, I've been part-time part staff at a church in Iowa City, uh, mostly in, in Juarez, Mexico, and in Romania. But I had friends who planted a church in Iowa, and uh, I thought it might, might be a good way to kind of keep a little stronger footing in a, in a formal church setting. And I wound up uh, being asked to preach half-time, so I would usually do three Sundays there, and then I would do four Sundays in Mexico, so about five weeks in Mexico and, and two and a half, three weeks in, in Iowa. And they used the lectionary at that church, which I'd never... Uh, had to draw from before, and I've become quite a fan of it, because you really see Old Testament and New Testament readings linked every week. Sometimes it's obvious maybe why they're linked, sometimes it's not so obvious, but you, you kind of get the 
one-two punch of scripture and then some, looking through the prophets and the Pentateuch and then the Gospels and Paul and so on. And these readings uh, from Amos chapter five and from Mark 10 were actually from uh, a lectionary reading last October. And I thought it was gonna be a reading when I was gonna be in, in Iowa City and I was looking forward to it and the schedules switched around and I wasn't there. So I just kind of kept all the scans of those commentaries thinking I would use them at some other point and this seemed like a good opportunity to bring them out. Because these are some of these texts, especially the Mark that we'll turn to again in a second, where we read it and we think, well, Jesus can't mean that because we're all gonna read, uh, hear him say, uh, you need to sell all your, all your possessions, give them to the poor and follow me and none of us are going to do it. And no follower of Jesus except maybe someone like Alec has ever done it. And so what do we make of a text that we know from the beginning we're just not going to do? Uh, and I think it should be comforting to us that Jesus' disciples' reaction was the same, like, well, we're not gonna do that, but can we still follow you? How do we, what, how do we make sense of it? Um, we won't actually look at the Amos text, but if you have the reading still there in front of you, I think it's, it'll suffice to say two things about the, the verses that Jim read from Amos. Uh, the first is that we tend to get away with what we can get away with. Uh, and we assuage our conscience by making it legal and figure it's all right. And you look at the strong language. I love the prophets, you know. You turn justice into wormwood and bring righteousness to the ground. Um, if any of you, by the way, are looking to form an indie band, justice into wormwood is, I think, would be, if it hasn't been claimed, that's a good, that's a good title. But that's strong language. Wormwood is a bitter herb. And, he's, and, and the prophet here is, is saying, people come into your court seeking justice and you turn it into wormwood. It's a bitter gall, a bitter draft for them to drink, and you bring righteousness to the ground. So we see from that that God is not impressed with legality, but he's interested in righteousness and justice, and they're not always the same thing. And the second thing that we could see from Amos is that yet we still had agency. He reprimands them from beginning to the end there in that text about how unjust they're being and how the God who turns day into night and night into day is not going to put up with it indefinitely. But yet we still, they still, and we still have agency. If you look at the last verse there, he tells them, hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. And it may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. So it's not just a passive word where he's saying, you've blown it, and when your dad comes home, you're gonna get it, like we used to hear. It's, there's still time for them and for us to do something about it and not to be passive, to establish justice in the gate. And there's always that word of hope in the prophets that it's not too late, that we can still do something and follow and respond and listen. But if we can look just for a few minutes at the Mark text, uh, and if you've got it there in front of you, I'll, I know the tradition here is for a, a written text of a sermon, and I've actually never done that. So I think what we'll do, the, the church where I've been working in, in, in Iowa is about a fifth the size of this building. So it's, it's kind of a U shape, and you sit on a little stool in the front, and there's 50 people in front of you, and, uh, and you're, you know everybody in the room, and you're, they're close enough you're close enough to them that you could probably spit and hit almost everybody, or vice versa, which is more, more, uh, more likely. Uh, and so what we tend to do in that setting, since it just would seem a little awkward to like read a prepared formal text when people are only three feet away from you, we'll go through the text in a little different, uh, uh, a little different order uh, rather than, than formally from A to Z. So I think that's what we'll try now. But let's, if we can just look at this for a moment and see again, what is it that Jesus is calling the rich young ruler to do and his disciples to do and us to do? And if we know we're not gonna do it, what are the point of texts like these? Are there ways that maybe we can do it even though it seems impossible? Look how it begins in verse 17. It says, as he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. Why doesn't Jesus want to be called good there, do you think? 
there's apparently 2,000 years worth of commentaries about they were worried about, didn't he know he was a member of the Trinity yet? He hadn't, hadn't reached that level of, of understanding of his role. That might have been a pressing question in earlier times. But one of the things, at least, that we can gather from our time is you can see right up front, he's not interested in brown-nosing. He's not interested in flattery. He's not interested in being addressed by his title. Uh, many of you are teachers, and you, you know the student who's like, Dr. Smith, Dr. Smith, and he's just hoping to get lots of points by emphasizing the doctor. When what you want is a questioner who really wants to know chemistry or physics or whatever it is that you've dedicated your life to, and his trying to flatter you with your title is actually not impressing, impressive to you. There's something similar to that here. Uh, and echoes of John the Baptist saying, I must decrease, you must increase. Or echoes of John chapter five, where Jesus says, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the father doing. So we see a model here right away for, for us as well, from the rich young rulers, but appears to be a well-intentioned approach. Good teacher, good teacher. And Jesus saying, you can dispense with a good teacher. You don't know me. You don't know if I'm good. You don't need to use the title. Tell me what you want to ask, and we'll see what goodness involves. Jesus deflects acclamation to God, to his Father. And I doubt that's much of, as much of an issue here, but uh, the, the area where I work down in, in El Paso, uh, you see this kind of thing all the time. The mission that I worked at with quite a bit is the Missouri Synod Lutheran Church, and if any of you have spent any time in that tradition, they have a very strong value on the pastor must always be addressed as pastor. So if you're Bob, you're Pastor Bob at all times, including in public. If your spouse addresses you, you're not Bob, you're not honey, you're Pastor Bob. Uh, I had a good friend who was uh, dating a seminarian in the Missouri Synod uh, Seminary, and, uh, and he told her, like, you know, when you marry me, you will, you will call me Pastor Bob. And uh, she ended the relationship. She was like, it's <laughs> a good call. And, uh, and it seems, and I understand the point. It's like, it's an it's a exalted office, and God honors it. And the way to do that is that the pastor must always be Pastor Bob. But in practice, it just, you see it around you, and you're like, it's like if you've ever been in the military, and you know that your commanding sergeant is your commanding sergeant, and you've got to salute him, even though you might think he's the biggest jerk in the world. But the salute has to be there. But they're not the same thing. And I just saw another example last week, actually, in the CRC church in El Paso, where Texas being Texas, it's a big sir and ma'am culture. And it's a mistake to forget the sir and the ma'am. You're probably going to hear about it, at least among the white folks, not as much among the brown. And I was in the church, and there's a, jan a night janitor there. Austin, you know him, Esteban, the guy who is a snake handler. And, uh, but he's a, he's a good guy. He's struggling. He's dropped out of college. He's really dealing with some serious depression, but he's trying to hang on to his faith. And the pastor happened to walk by. We were chatting. And, uh, and the janitor was like, hey, Tony. The pastor's younger than me. He's not, he's not an august presence, necessarily. And Pastor Tony stopped and turned. He was like, I noticed you didn't call me Pastor Tony. And, uh, and then there was a slight pause. And I think Pastor Tony realized that might have been a little too harsh. And he was like, it's the office. you, you got to respect the office. And he kept walking. And I just thought, I know Pastor Tony means well, but especially knowing who he was talking to, that bruised reed and smoking fl uh, flax, uh, that probably wasn't the way to earn honor and love from uh, somebody in his flock. So it's just good for us. I thought of that again as I was reading this text. It's, I think, a relief for us. And it's always been, I think, uh, a joy for me here that you know we have Mike and we have Jim. And I respect Mike more that he doesn't insist on being called Pastor Mike, although probably in the next life we will have to call him Pastor Mike. But for now. Actually, I call, I've gotten a long habit of calling Mike and Beth Domine. If you grew up in the Dutch church, you know it means Lord and Master. Uh, <laughs> in fact, I looked it up this morning, and it says a clergyman, especially a settled minister or parson. 
And then on the Wikipedia disambiguation page, it says, also a tropical fish. I thought you'd like that. And it's good that we can laugh, because I've been in some churches lately there where you don't laugh around a pastor, because that's to disrespect the office. And I think texts like this, even just that little throwaway of a good teacher, why do you call me good, reminds us maybe what kind of relation Jesus is looking to have with us, and what kind of relation he has with his father. He deflects the acclamation to his father, and is not interested in us spending our time shining his shoes. But then he continues, because the questioner's uh, request is real. He wants to know what he needs to do to be a follower, to uh, follow this God. Uh, and what we'll see here is that maybe there's two things involved, but a little more than what the questioner what we would have expected. So if you want to follow, what then? Verse 19, Jesus tells him, you know the commandments. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie, don't defraud, honor your parents. It's interesting that he doesn't read all 10 commandments, by the way. Uh, he doesn't, you, and you always see this when you see Jesus dealing with the law. He doesn't just take out his pocket constitution and say, read the book. It's on page 17. It's done. He's, it's a live thing for him. He's interpreting it. He's seeing what's needed. And in this case, he only lists the social commandments to the rich young men, the ones that deal with treatment of others as opposed to private piety. We don't know why that is. It's one of those many things that scripture doesn't say. It may be that because the blind spots of the powerful, which this man would have been, have to do with taking advantage of others, because you can. That tends to be what we do. When we can, we'll take advantage of others. Uh, you see all the time in the, in the estates in northern Mexico that were owned by the big rich landowners, uh, a little private chapel, very nicely adorned, little gold fittings. Uh, and so, you know, they would go in every morning and have their resident priests say mass for them and then go out and kind of crush the peons all day. Uh, but as long as the mass was said in the private chapel, the private piety had been taken care of. So it may be for that reason that the commands that Jesus lists to the rich young ruler are the social ones that deal with how are you treating your neighbor and your fellow. But even in spite of this, look what the young man says in verse 20. Teacher, I've kept all these since my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. And apparently we're supposed to take this young man at his word. He's not one of the scribes, one of the Pharisees who's trying to bait Jesus, trick him into questions. He's not apparently showing off, no problem, I've done all that. I've got straight A's all the way through. And because it says that Jesus looks, at, looks upon him, looks intently, I guess is the Greek verb, and loved him. And from what we know of Jesus, he doesn't look on hypocrisy, hypocrisy lovingly. So it seems like this man is child, has a childlike earnestness, like, I've really been trying to do that. I really want to do that. I know I'm supposed to do it, and I've been trying to do it. So we shouldn't sneer at this guy. He's probably trying harder than we are. And yet he comes to Jesus, and, and he's ready now, saying, I've really been trying to do this all my life. And Jesus, too, takes him seriously, looks at him, loves him, and apparently decides, given this openness, if he's that serious and he really wants to follow, I'll tell him what he should do. And Jesus continues in verse 21. You will act only one thing. Go, sell what you own, give the money to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and then come, follow me. It's an interesting command. Go, sell, give, come, follow. But it's striking that the command, the invitation is to follow, here and now. It's not, it's not, uh, Invest now, and when you're 65, the dividends will come in. But you can do this right now. Go, sell it, give it away, come back, and you're with me 20 minutes from now, following. It's a command for the here and now. I think it's easier for us, especially convenient for us, given human nature when we read these things, to see the treasure in heaven and think like, oh, so it's kind of like a moral hedge fund managing, that if I, get it, if I, if I play it right, if my broker gives me the best advice, I'll have treasures in heaven, and then in the next life, I'll really be able to cash in. 
but you know, when, especially when Jesus talks later in this passage about the age to come versus the age that's now, or treasure in heaven, the emphasis, I think, and, and the commentaries all agree, is it doesn't, doesn't mean that you must go up to heaven to get it, but it means that God will keep it for you, stored up until the age to come comes. And as we'll see by the end of this passage in verse 30, Jesus is saying, the age to come is come with me right now. You get to spend it. It's not waiting for you until you die. One of the commentators had a good line. The reason you have money in the bank is not so that you can spend it in the bank, but so that you can take it out and spend it somewhere else. I think that's the gist of what Jesus is getting at here. He's like, I'm inviting you to follow here and now. These treasures in heaven that will come from your following, from your being willing to be vulnerable and give this stuff up, can now be put to use right here and now, not off in some bank. You need to cash that check, and we can get to work. The age to come, as we see in verse 30 at the end here, is breaking through right here, right now, with Jesus' arrival. And it's one of those many things that how many times, how many thousands of times in our lives have we prayed, you know, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, where? On earth as it is in heaven. And we think, what do we mean by that? It's like, that's what Jesus is saying. He's like, yeah, right now, let's, let's start, I'm here. You don't have to wait for some heaven. We can bring it, to, we can begin to bring it to be right now. But now we come to the crux and kind of the beating, the beginning of the end of, of this passage here. From verse 22, when he heard this, he, like the disciples, like us, was shocked and went away grieving, for he had many possessions. Just like that. We might say, what happened? It says in the beginning he came running to Jesus. It's one of the few times in the Gospels where somebody comes running and falls down before Jesus. In fact, I think the only time in Mark's Gospel where this happened. And when he's given a list of commandments, he says, I've done those, or at least I've sure tried to do those. He's completely open and ready. But when Jesus says, just one more thing, get rid of your stuff, give it away, and follow me, he's shocked, he goes away grieving, for he had many possessions. Why such an abrupt change? I think if, we, if you run your eye back over that list of commandments again, versus what he's asked to do in verse 22, we might understand a little bit about what's wrong with him and what's wrong with us. You know, you look, we look at that list of commandments, don't murder, don't, ki- don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, don't defraud. They basically boil down to don't hurt other people. Let them be. Don't hurt them. And if we think about it, we think, you know, if I really try, I could probably do that. It's like, I don't really have to murder anybody, I don't think. Like, stealing's kind of fun sometimes, but I don't have to do it. Uh, and, and so on. So we think, like, if I, if I want to try and be good, I'll be good for me, you be good for you, I won't hurt you, you won't hurt me. That, that's barely on the, on the horizon of what we, what we think we can do. And that's what the first step of what Jesus had told them to do. Don't, 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 don't. And he said, I, I'll try that. But don't hurt others is not the same as love others. And that's what Jesus has asked him to do in the second step, which is apparently quite a bit harder, because when it came time to take that step, that verb for he was shocked apparently means like your face to cloud over like when a storm comes or his face fell or his face collapsed, meaning like, can't do it, won't do it. I got to find another master then because I could not hurt others, but when, it, when you're asking me to love them at my own expense, I can't do it. That's not reasonable. And he walks away. And that's what Jesus is calling him to do. So if we ask ourselves, am I willing to take my stuff and give it to the poor because the poor mean more to me than my stuff does? If Jesus says that to us, what's our reaction? Well, almost certainly it's, but it's my stuff. It's like, why, why are you asking me to, to give it away? You know, it's, I won't murder, uh, but my stuff is kind of dearer to me than somebody that I don't know or other than my immediate family. It's my stuff and it's mine and why are you trying to get your hands on it? 
So that young man, just like us, is willing not to hurt, but not maybe willing to love or care for. But Jesus, it says, isn't that way, which is why Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, you have to take the second step as well and be willing to love. Do we value our stuff more than our neighbor? It's one of those things where you're like, probably. So what do we do about it? I saw a couple examples that, that, that helped frame things for us just in the last uh, few weeks. In December, uh, I was in Romania and I had a chance to go to Jordan. There's all these low-cost flights, so for like 20 bucks you can go anywhere within Europe. And so I had friends who do mission work in Jordan and I flew down for four or five days and, and saw them. And one of the things that came up often were that the Crusades, which are what, 800 years old, depending which one you want, are living memory for them, just like if you go to the South, the Civil War is living memory because the battlefield is right there. If you go to Jordan, it's living, the Crusades are living memory because the armies came right there and, and did the damage. And in fact, they call the Crusades the War of the Cross uh, because the Europeans came down with crosses and kind of wreaked havoc trying to reclaim the holy sites. And in talking with my friend, who's American, and some of his Jordanian friends, it became really striking. With the Crusader mentality, you know, what's more valuable? The holy sites, the holy land, or the people who are living there now? 11th century, 12th century, and in their mind it was like, skip the people, we need the city, we need the temple, we need the site, this is holy earth, and the people who happen to be living there are completely expendable. Exactly what Jesus is talking about, the stuff was worth more than the people that are there, and now 800 years later the witness of the cross remains tainted. The cross for them doesn't mean Jesus came to die for your sins, it means his followers came to kill us, and they're gonna, they'd do it again if they had a chance, and it makes his, my friend's work as a Christian, quite a bit more difficult there because there's an 800-year tradition of valuing our stuff, in this case, the holy city, over the people, the living souls who are living in it. Sounds kind of cheesy, but then when you look into faces, you realize, I'd give up 100 Jerusalems if these people that I'm looking at right now could maybe come to an understanding of what God is. Who cares what the city is? At least I hope that's how we can begin to think. Let them inhabit the city, but if they could know God living there, I don't need to inhabit it. Let them do it. The other time I saw it, just a couple days ago in El Paso, as you know, an emergency declaration was declared on the border, which gives the government a lot of power to do a lot of things. Uh, and one of the things that people, especially kind of older white rancher people in the El Paso area are, are incensed about is that declaring an emergency declaration gives you eminent domain. So that means suddenly they're gonna lose like 500 meters of their land all along the, the border so that a wall can go up. And it was really striking to me in, in hearing some of these people interviewed in the local press uh, that they were livid that now someone was going to take my property when they had really not shed a thought or certainly not a tear over the fate of the desperate neighbors who were just across that wall trying to come through and stay alive. And you'd have at least maybe expected like a balance, like, I hate to see those people dying over there, but I still want my 500 meters of land. But instead, all the anger was over here. It's like, how dare someone take my strip of desert? And those people's life and death is their problem. It's not mine, but my land is mine. And it was not that I'm better than your answer or you are either, but you realize that's how we think. Somebody else trying to cross is somebody else's problem. They're not mine, but this land is mine. Uh, my religion was founded in Jerusalem, so that city should be mine, and I don't care who's living there now. That's not my problem. Uh, these are the same kind of tensions that Jesus is reminding the rich young ruler and the disciples, as we'll see, and us. So we think, what are our priorities to be? Because he says, this is all about, do we want to follow Jesus? or follow something else. He says, if you're gonna follow me, the first will be last, the last will be first. Our priorities are gonna to have to be flipped so that we can follow this one that we claim to be after. And maybe the last thing here is, so Jesus says all this, 
sell your stuff, give it away, and follow me. Uh, do more than just don't hurt others, but actually love others. But as always, Jesus is going to walk the walk as well as talk the talk. Because if we th- we're going to go to the table in a moment, go to the cup, go to the bread, as we do every Sunday. And if you think about, is this what God does for us? Is this what Jesus does for us or does for them? Does he limit it to, I'm not going to hurt you. You just, you just be good, keep out of my way, and we'll get through this. Or does he do more than that? You know, besides the, the text that we always read for the table, we remember things like 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. In other words, we matter more to him than his stuff. It makes us think right away of Philippians chapter 2, the kenosis passage. Though he was in the form of God, he didn't cling to this privilege, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, and being found in human form, humbled himself by becoming obedient, even to death. This isn't the kind of generosity that like Jeff Bezos does, where uh, the headline the other day was what, that, that Jeff Bezos gave $2 billion to charity, which is a lot. It's $2 billion more than I'm ever going to give to charity. But then his net worth is $134 billion. So it's whatever, 1.8%. That's not bad. I hope I give more than 1.8% of my net worth, but I don't want to do the math in public. Um, <laughs> but either, the point is, that's not what Jesus does either. He's not like, I've got 134, why don't you take two? And then I'll, I'll, and you can, you can thank me later for my service. This emptying that Jesus does, this becoming poor for our sake so that we might be made rich, is a whole different equation. It's a full giving of himself so that we might be saved from the disasters that we're in into the life and the joy that he is. And so he's saying, do you want to follow me? Because that's what I'm going to do. Is that what you want? Because if you're going to follow me, that's what you're going to have to do. Because that's where I'm going. I'm not going anywhere else, is what he says. And we'll close just with the last couple uh, verses there where the disciples' reaction, I think, is an encouragement because it's ours. And again and again you see, it's not like the disciples are high-fiving when the rich young ruler goes away and be like, you dunked on him, Jesus. They're actually just as, in fact, the verbs are the same. They're astonished, they're astounded, they're amazed, they're disheartened. And they say, who can be saved then? Verse 23, Jesus looked around and said to the disciples, how hard it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were perplexed at these words, but Jesus said to them again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of God. And they were greatly astounded and said to one another, so what's the point? What are we doing here? Because we're not going to fit through that eye of the needle. But Jesus looked at them and said, for mortals, it is impossible, but not for God. Again, the agency comes in in the end, but not for God. For God, all things are possible. And when Jesus says there, it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle, why? Why is it easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a wealthy person to enter the kingdom of heaven? Apparently here, it's not because the door isn't open, but because we will just refuse to go in it. It's not that angels with flaming swords are going to guard the way and keep us out, but that the stuff that we have will just keep us from going in. We won't be interested in making that transition and going in. So it's urgent that these impediments be removed is what he's saying. If you're going to follow me, you're going to have to shed that stuff so that you can follow me in. And two illustrations to close with, I think, that uh, I've thought of recently or, or maybe seen in my own experience. Have you ever gone swimming fully clothed? I won't ask you if you've ever gone swimming fully unclothed. But if you've ever, have you ever gone swimming fully clothed, shoes too? So if you're in a lifeboat, uh, you know, whatever, you're a passenger in the Titanic, and you're in the lifeboat, and you see, you know, 
couple kids out there drowning 10 feet away, uh, and you're fully clothed in your winter coat, and mink coat, and your, your Uggs, or whatever, what's going to happen if you jump in after that kid? You're not going to make it. You're going to drown. The clothes are too heavy. You're, you're going to have to shed them and take them off if you're going to go in the water after that kid. That's just the way it works. You don't get the option of leaving the clothes on. Either you keep them on and stay in the boat and say, he's not my problem. She could drown. He can drown. Or you have to take that stuff off if you're going to go in and live yourself and bring somebody out of the water. Uh, that's part of the image here where he's like, that's just how it works. He's like, I'm going into the water. If you're coming in with me, you better take that stuff off because you can't swim with it on. You're going to go under. And that's not what I want. I want you to be strong enough that you can also help pull people out. And the disciples, you know, in those last verses where they're like, well, we, we give everything up. What, do we get anything at the end? And he's like, yeah, yeah, you'll get a hundredfold. Don't, don't worry about that. But that's a little bit like the disciples saying, well, like, well can I at least like, take off my clothes in the boat and leave them here so they'll be dry when I come back? And I can, because these are nice Uggs. I just got these Uggs. And I, I, I don't want to lose them. And I think what Jesus is saying there, you could see almost maybe a, a, a bit of a, a smile on the end where he's like, you're going to get a hundredfold. And he said, I think you know, what you're going to find is when you get back in the boat with a couple of kids in your arms that they're worth a hundred times more than those Uggs that you left when you jumped out. So I wouldn't worry about the Uggs is what he's saying. You'll get something that you'll be happy with in the end. And the last illustration maybe is um, when I go to Romania often, a couple, three times a year, um, you have to pay one ticket to get from here to Europe. And then within Europe, the low-cost airlines are all over the place. So um, like this time, I'll go to Romania. I'm going to go see Mark from Mary Marsh's brother in The Hague. I've got a colleague in Ukraine who does orphanage work that I'll see. Um, I've got another former pastor in Berlin who does refugee work, and which sounds like really exotic. Like, what is this guy asking us for money? And then he's taking like 18 flights in Europe. But the point is, like, you pay 400 bucks to get across to Germany, and then it's like 30 bucks, 20 bucks, 30 bucks. If you're going to do any of this, you have to fly on a low-cost airline. So you fly on Ryanair, or Wizz Air, EasyJet. But if you've ever flown those, you know how they work. Your ticket is 28 bucks. And even your carry-on bag is like 56 bucks. If you check a bag, it's like 99 bucks. So the only way you can really afford to do it is if you don't bring any baggage. And I almost didn't go to Romania this spring, but some of the kids I've known since 2005 are going to graduate from high school, and then they'll leave the orphanage. I might not see them again. So I was like really hoping to find a way, because the tickets had gone up to like $900. So I was like, ah. Oh. Anyway, I found a way to cobble it together with a whole bunch of these little low-cost tickets, but that means I'm going to have to be there for a month with nothing bigger than a backpack, and not even like a hiking backpack, just like a school backpack. So I'm like, all right, one pair of jeans, one pair of shoes, three shirts for a month. So it's going to be, you know, a little pungent, maybe, by the end of that month. <laughs> Romanians don't, don't have laundry facilities everywhere up country. But that's what it comes down to. It's like, do you want to go see these friends or not? Because if you want to bring baggage, you can't afford to go. You're just not going to go. So that's your choice. Uh, you're going to have to leave the check bags behind if you want to see the friends. And all you have to do is scroll through some of those pictures of the people you're going to see, and you're like, oh, yeah, that's a hundredfold. It's like... I can smell as bad as I want. And the last spring I had to do this too. And early in the trip, my friend's cat peed on my shoes. It was the only pair I had for a month. And so I'm Googling like cat urine shoes and there's nothing. And so I, the rest of the month I'm walking around in these shoes that reek. They're still a couple miles away from here in my parents' garage. My mom won't let them in the house. A year later, it won't come. I don't know what that cat drinks, but it's... Um, but it, so it became kind of a running joke. They're like, that is disgusting. And I was like, well, I'm here. And they're like, we know. <laughs> and so it's become, I think I'm going to wear them actually again this year, just to, just to show, like, I love you this much. <laughs> but there is exactly something there in what Jesus is saying. Do you want to go? Then a backpack's going to have to be it, because anything else and you just, the trip's not going to be made. So make your choice. 
And that's what Jesus is saying here. He's like, let's go. It's worth going to see these folks. I'm getting on the plane, so leave the bags. You know, we're boarding now. Here's your ticket. And that's the word of the Lord for us.